to the demise of the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, my own writing, as we delve back into an eye for the peculiar. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, or if you're expecting me to start reading from my book from the beginning, and I mean from the first page... Go back and listen to an Eye for the Peculiar preview episode because that is where I read the first part. Not the entirety of part one, but the first little chunk of an Eye for the Peculiar, my new novel that just came out on February 3rd. It's February 10th, and after selling all the books that I'm going to be selling for a hot minute because that's usually how it works, the first few days a book is out, you sell as many copies as you can, and then those peter out fairly quickly. I'm picking up where I left off with that episode, except like all my typical demise of the podcast, I'm going to be offering commentary as I go along, much in the way that I would any other book on the podcast, but also kind of in the same vein of when I read Demise of the Trinity from start to finish on here last year. Now, I'm not saying that I'm going to be reading the entire book. I'm not going to commit to that. But I do plan on taking up some time with this as a series. But Patrick, this is the first time I've ever listened to your podcast. Aren't you going to tell me what the book is about? No, that's what the last episode that I did on this book was about. The last week's fucking episode was about this book. I mean, come on, people. Get it together, for God's sakes. Per usual, we have our ablutions to take care of before we actually delve into the reading today. I had something that I prepared, a top five list. And it's it's my way of not only humbling myself, but also gathering complaints about myself that people have made throughout the years. We all face critics in our lives. And at a certain point in your life, you're going to have to learn to brush off the criticism. But that doesn't mean that you should tune all criticism out. However, there are going to be people out there who criticize you just for the sake of criticism. And those people are pretty obvious. The people that you have somehow wronged or they have perceived you as wronging them, many times you don't even know who they are, especially in the age of the internet. This is the top five ways that Patrick Attaway sucks. Now, number five is that I'm a pseudo-intellectual. Some people will listen to this podcast or know me from the internet, even though I haven't been on Twitter for about a year. I haven't been on any message boards for years. However, people tend to hold on to the impressions that you make upon them, even if they're not truly who you are. And one of the worst things that anyone has ever said to me is that I'm not actually very smart, which I'm fine with because I don't think I'm actually all that smart. But intellectualism is an entirely different thing than being smart because there's street smarts and then there's book smarts. I believe that intelligence is not what you know, it's how you employ, how you utilize what you know. So... I come on here and occasionally I bring up my education. I'm not going to tell you how I'm educated at the moment because people are tired of hearing about it by now. I don't do it every single episode. In fact, whenever I started a new job at any given place, I would usually not tell people that I worked with 
what degree or degrees I had. So, you know, typically people will find things out about you because they'll ask you questions. If you're any kind of setting with anybody in any place ever for an expanded amount of time, work, school, whatever, people will ask you questions about yourself because people are nosy as shit. Number four, you have a boring podcast. Well, I don't know what to tell you about that, but you're the one listening to it, you dumb shit. Aside from anyone saying that my podcast is boring, I've never actually heard anyone say that my podcast is boring, but I have someone call me unsufferable, which I'm fine with. I know that I'm unsufferable. Number three, you couldn't make it in academia. Well, <laughs> Let me tell you something about academia. Academia is a mistress. It's a harsh mistress. You fall in love with her. She gives you a a little taste of the goods. And then you're like, I want to build my entire life around this. And then you get into it and you're like, this sucks. Because teaching is wonderful. I really enjoyed teaching. But then it came to the students who either didn't want to do their work or would give you an attitude when you called them out on plagiarism or school administration. I've already gone into my quarrels with school administration, but to put it in a nutshell, they didn't want me teaching at their school anymore because of my truly liberal arts background. (laughs) And so after giving me a hard time about what I was teaching and also wanting me to quote-unquote teach an automated course, meaning I would have absolutely no input on anything whatsoever, I decided to resign. And now I am working the same job that I've been working for the past six years that is totally divorced from my education. And I'm still trying to figure out what the hell to do next because a lot of people have been leaving academia. And a lot of people who used to teach at my university are no longer teaching there anymore. People who were very, uh, is the word, could we use the word esteemed or prestigious? You know what I mean. People who were respected in the academic community who were part of the institution that provided me with my education. See how I did that there? They went to other schools. Um, Humble brag moment. But... One of my grad school professors is now one of the head professors at Brown University. So it's almost like I got an Ivy League education, right? No, not really. I'm still a dumb shit. Number two, your music sucks. Do you know how many times I've heard that my music sucks? I've been putting my music out online since I was 15 years old. I'm in my 30s now. I've heard it all. I've had my life threatened over my music because people hated it so much. And they also hated me. So that was great. But typically speaking, and I've had to think about this recently. Not everything that is out there in the world is for you. I don't like Taylor Swift. I don't hate Taylor Swift. But Taylor Swift is not for me. She's not serving any needs or purposes for me. Her music is for a very specific demographic. She's very popular, obviously, but she's fulfilling something in a lot of people that they need fulfilled that they hunger for. I don't hunger for what they hunger. I don't, I don't seek whatever validation or whatever Taylor Swift music is providing all these people, mostly women, mostly white women. 
aside from the white women who really like Taylor Swift, you know, I can't hate Taylor Swift for that. My mother recently asked me and my wife, what's the deal with Billie Eilish? And see, if she'd asked me that about five years ago, I might have had an answer for her. But now, in 2024, Billie Eilish, despite having... Did she win a Grammy or whatever for her fucking song in Barbie? I don't know. I don't pay attention to that stuff. I just hear things from different people. And uh, I process it in the way that I process it. So let's just say that Billie Eilish was either nominated for a Grammy or won a Grammy. I don't, even, I don't even remember if the Grammys have happened yet. I don't pay attention. I don't give a shit. Everything I learn about Billie Eilish and everything that I learn about every, every popular person in the world that I don't care about is against my will. So, but I told my mother, I think I told my mother, her, her music's not for you. She's, you're not her target audience. I don't think I actually said that to her. I think I said that to my wife afterwards when we were talking about it. Anyway, yeah, my music sucks. It's not for you. Fine. Number one, you're a bad writer. This is not the worst insult that anyone could give me, but they think it is, especially if they're also a writer. Writers are incredibly bitchy, bitter people. All that community bullshit, that's a lie. That really is a lie. An Eye for the Peculiar is the first book that I've written without any kind of social media influence or, you know, indirect inspiration because I've been away from Twitter and the writing community for over a year. Well, I can't say over a year. I've deleted my Twitter in March and it's February. Greenskin I wrote while I was still on Twitter and still trying to promote my work there. Still communicating with other authors. Right now, the only author that I routinely speak to about writing and whatnot is Zev Good. I've never had someone who wasn't a writer tell me that my writing sucked. That's never happened, except in the sixth grade because of my handwriting. I've always had serial killer handwriting. I was telling my wife about this. And in the moment, it hurt. But, you know, in retrospect, I laugh about it because it is silly. But my handwriting was really bad, but I loved writing. And everybody who knew me knew that I wanted to be a writer for a living. And there I am in the sixth grade. And for some reason, I pissed off this kid, CJ, and this girl, Danielle. And CJ said, and you can't write. And I mean, it just came out of nowhere. And here I am sitting with something that I've been working on for however long. And he meant my handwriting. He thought that if I had bad handwriting, that I couldn't make it as a writer. And then Danielle said, yeah, you're going to go up to a publisher one day and they're going to say, what's this? I don't know whatever happened to Danielle. I don't even know if that's her actual name, honestly. I don't remember her last name. But CJ joined the military. so And he turned out to be an all right guy. But in the moment, he was being mean to little Patrick. But that's what kids do in junior high school. Speaking of mean people, we're going to get back into this book, An Eye for the Peculiar. And I am reading it off my Kindle, so occasionally I'm going to be pausing because I have to figure out what I'm doing. And I had to skip ahead to where we left off last time. By the time I shut my car door, a man in his mid-30s with a shaved head looks at me from behind a screen door. If he wasn't wearing glasses and a beige sweater, 
I think he was coming out to ask if I swear allegiance to some racially motivated hate group. He's definitely not Bertie Devonwood. I'm not expecting anybody, he says. Can I help you? Steve Sebastian, I offer my hand. Associated Press. Are you Harrison? He takes a step back and crosses his arm so I won't be getting that handshake. But he's not wrong suspecting a stranger randomly pulling into his yard. He doesn't look anything like the Burmans I saw this morning, which I imagine is one point of discontent with the family. You know, there is so much that can be loaded into one line that an outsider, especially in a fictitious book, can pick up on. So, I've made it a point on this podcast and in the book at the beginning with the disclaimer. But last last time, I read a whole disclaimer about how this book is a work of fiction, right? Because it is a work of fiction, but that doesn't mean that Unlike all my other books, this book actually has people that have real-life counterparts. My other books don't have that. Now, some people may find that hard to believe because, for some reason, some readers of Greenskin thought that that book was a representation of anything reflective of reality. That maybe I was Wayne or other characters. No. This book does have someone who is inspired directly by me, and it's not the protagonist, Steve Sebastian. But Harrison, (laughs) if you know what I look like, let's go over this again. This guy has a shaved head, and he's wearing glasses, and he's instantly bitchy to this, this stranger. Now, me in real life... I wouldn't open the door to a stranger. I don't open the door to anybody who just randomly shows up at my house. Not going to happen. My wife won't do it either. She last she we we've had this person who's come once in January and once at the beginning of February who's like a sales lady and my neighbor has absolutely no soliciting allowed. There's a sign at the at the front of the neighborhood. A lot of neighborhoods are like that. But Of course, people ignore that and they show up at your door anyway. But my wife would not even move the the curtain that's in front of the door, you know, to talk to this lady. But that that line, uh, he doesn't look anything like the Burmans I saw this morning, which I imagine is one point of discontent with the family. Ironically, I did look at a picture that my niece took of me last night and I was like, oh, my God, I look like my grandmother. But my entire life, I've always looked like my my dad and uh, my mother's family. My mother's family is made up of very attractive people. So that's one way that I've stuck out is that I go to a house with a bunch of models and I'm the least attractive person there. Your cousin Adrian recommended I speak with you, I say. You are aware of your grandmother's passing, right? What do you want, Mr. Sebastian? I shouldn't want anything, I say. But I went to your grandmother's viewing yesterday, and only as journalistic intrigue. You know, a businesswoman who touched so many people is worth at least a write-up in the local paper. I don't think you're telling me the truth, Harrison says. Associated Press doesn't write for small-town papers. You were snooping for something, and my uncles probably kicked you out of there. Are you a journalist? Because that's pretty spot on. 
I have a master's in English, Harrison says. I've read a few books. Could we talk? Not if you're some kind of serial killer, Harrison says. I take my jacket off and throw it in the open window of my car and hold up my arms. Want to pat me down? I ask. Come on, he turns around. Oh, could I use your restroom? I had a few Diet Cokes today. That's a reference back to the Waffle House scene. There's a lot that's in this book that I don't know how to adequately address as I'm reading. And that scene at Waffle House with the gentleman who was Eugenia Berman's second ex-husband, well, he's inspired by someone that I've never even met. This is a great example of fiction being inspired by real life, but I've distorted it so much that, you know, for instance, there's no one named Eugenia Berman out there. She is inspired by a real life person, and that real life person is still alive. However, that real life person isn't from Noonan. Uh, a lot of the things that are said about Eugenia in this book are not reflective of reality at all. But, you know, you have to write what you know, as the, the saying goes. But I found that a lot of people, including Instagram as a software, doesn't seem to understand the common phrases that writers use. One of those being kill your darlings, because I, when I was writing this book, I edited out a line and before I did, I took a picture of it and I sent it to my friend Steve and then I, I posted it on Instagram and I said, I'm killing my darlings and Instagram instantly took it down because I used the word kill but, and I'm like, are they about to report me to local law enforcement for editing a book? Given the exterior, I expected old carpet and wood paneling complemented with musk. Instead, millennial gray flooring with optic white walls adorned Harrison's home. Optic white is an invisible man reference. Apart from his degrees, there's a Batman pop art poster and little else for decoration. The television and bookshelf sort of center everything. Nothing says money, though. I don't keep Diet Coke in the house, Harrison says, but I have Coke Zero if you'd like. No thanks. I sit down on the leather love seat. I spoke with Joel Withers about your family a few minutes ago. Ever meet him? I know of him, Harrison sits across from me. He was my grandmother's third husband. You never knew any of them? Her husband's, I mean. My grandfather died the year I was born. I'm actually surprised Joel is still alive. <laughs> he is an old bastard, I say. You know, he almost knocked me over leaving the funeral today. Probably afraid of my uncles, especially Bernard. I contemplate abundant loose threads poking inside my head that need tying together, but I let Harrison navigate the conversation before I start asking questions. There are several different personality types and subjects. He's not the kind of man you get too direct with or he'll shut off. I peel him like an onion and don't expect anything once I get through all the layers. Expectation leads to disappointment. That 
paragraph reminds me of the conversation that Steve Sebastian and Wayne have in Greenskin where Wayne purposefully doesn't feed into the conversation that a journalist is presenting him with because he's hyper aware of what's going on. I met him, but even that was too much, I say. His son Bernie seemed nice. My grandmother used to call Bernard a black-eyed devil. I think that was her way of calling him a son of a bitch. Sounds like a charming guy. What do you want to know, Steve? Harrison asked. We're not doing a podcast here. It's the secrecy, I say. Everyone has been really standoffish about Eugenia and your family business. People give me a little nibble and then there's no hook to reel me in. And what do you have so far? Do you know Beth Kemble? I ask. I worked with Beth in the kitchen for about a year. Those women who worked at the nursing home talked a lot. So you worked at one of the nursing homes? I worked at the Noonan one for a year. Washing dishes, making trays, and taking out the trash. Stuff like that. I needed a job when I finished undergrad. How long did you... How long ago did you stop talking to Eugenia? We last spoke to each other on my last day at the nursing home in June 2017. I got a job at Piedmont Hospital so I could leave. Adrian said he'd win a bet that you wouldn't show at the funeral, so she must have done something pretty shitty. The word something implies only one instance. There's about 20-something years of pretty shitty. You already know that, though. Sounds like you have a lot to vent about. I'm here for it. Harrison leans his head back, and there's a crackling sound from his neck before an exhale that fills the room with a lot more information than anything I'm learning from this conversation. Things were likely always strained, between Harrison and the Burmans, and it didn't seem like anyone but Adrian was looking for him at the viewing. If Harrison quit communicating with Eugenia in 2017, he cut himself off from the head of the family, and I gather everyone stood with her in solidarity no matter what she did. I'm sure Joel told you about how the nursing home started and that she got it in the divorce from Jimmy. He wanted to leave it to Bernie and Noel, right? I ask. So you heard that part. You also know that Prescott was her first husband. How long were they married? Almost ten years, I think. She said she'd never stopped loving the father of her children. All I know about him is through her and mother. They talked about him like a celebrity for most of my life. Sometimes... My mother cried whenever she randomly thought about him. It took me about 30 years to understand how much losing him affected her, but I don't know much about him other than my grandmother telling me about his drinking and gambling. She said one time he disappeared for a weekend, and she had no idea he was in a cabin playing poker with his friends. Another time he came home, and all he had left from his paycheck was a quarter. I don't know anyone else who loved him like my mother, though. My dad claims that he never had more than a conversation with him, and Prescott told him, don't let them screw over Bertie. Was she supposed to get a stake in the business, I ask? 
It was about his will. Uncle Eric had a new Mustang with his cut. Irvin started a college fund for Adrian, and you see how well that worked out. All my mother got was Prescott's old trailer. They sure as hell didn't make money selling it, and the property was in Eugenia's name. Do you think your mother got screwed in general? I can't say one way or the other. Harrison brushes back hair he doesn't have. She was able to support us with the job from the nursing home, which she wouldn't have without for Eugenia, but, you know... Worked there for over three decades, and my cousin Bernie became director of nursing one day and was able to build a house that cost over half a million. We never had that kind of money. That what broke you? No. What broke me was years of seeing my mother get manipulated. My grandmother wanted her to call me Prescott and actually sent her home from work one day because she wanted to name me Harrison. She also fired my dad when he brought up my grandfather's will. Basically, my mother's job was on the line if she didn't do what my grandmother wanted. Bernard made my mother cry in front of me a few times when he needed to put her in line. They thought her standing up for herself at work made them look bad. I assume Eugenia tried the same with you when you worked there. What do you think... Our relationship was, Harrison asked. Sounds like it was contentious. Sometimes. When I was little, she was always kind to me. She babysat me when my mother was trying to make friends or go on dates after Dad left. When her new house in the 90s didn't have running water, she used it as an excuse to come spend the night with us a few times. You know, I wasn't her favorite, but sometimes think I was like her sixth child. She'd admonish me for something she didn't like and always tell me she loved me more than anyone else in the world. Anyway, I started dating my wife in 2016 and Eugenia offered her a job. And when my wife put in her two weeks notice, my grandmother cornered her in the bathroom and caused her to have a panic attack. I was in the kitchen washing dishes and Beth came up to me saying that my wife left. Eugenia pulled me into her office and told me that my wife needed psychiatric help. She questioned her ethnicity and basically wanted me to leave her. What'd you say? I asked. Not much I could say because I knew that Eugenia was baiting me. If we both walked out of the job, we'd been screwed. So I went right back to work that day. I started applying for jobs and eventually got hired by Piedmont. And what's your wife's name? Nope, Harrison shakes his head. We're not going to talk any more about her. If she was home, I wouldn't have let you in. I crossed that boundary with Wayne in 2020 when I paid his ex-wife to appear in a documentary about him. Prying into Harrison's personal life won't cost me my job, but he'd cut me off from any information I need. She never apologized to my wife, though. Instead, Eugenia pressured my mother into cutting me out of her life and my mother had to buy this property with her savings because she was living in a house my grandmother owned. Eugenia was willing to put my mother out of a house she lived in for years all because my wife didn't want to work in nursing. And Bertie kept working at the nursing home? 
Bernard wouldn't let her fire my mother. However, you may have heard that I lost my mother in 2020. COVID, I ask? Yeah. She caught it from someone at the nursing home. Eugenia and Bernard actually hired a security officer to keep me from her funeral. Hold on, I say. Are you not the executor of Bertie's estate? I am, Harrison says, but Eugenia paid for the funeral, the coffin, and the burial. I didn't even get to see my mother before they put her in the ground. This couldn't only be because of a disagreement with your wife. It was because I left the family. I wouldn't fall in line. They never wanted to outright say I was the black sheep. My mother was the only one of the kids to pursue a divorce, and she married a man who tried standing up to Eugenia. Not that my dad was a good husband or anything. There's a notification tone, and Harrison pulls out his iPhone, so I assume his wife texted him, and it's about time to go. However, I find little clarity as to what the family protect. Is it time to go? I ask. I'll walk you out, Harrison says. I have a card. I get up and pull one of my business cards from my back pocket. So if you want to talk more, I'd love to hear from you. While Harrison accepts my number, he doesn't look at what I hand him before putting it on top of an issue of Vogue and heading for the door. Is there any chance you know someone in the family who might talk to me? I ask. Most of my cousins know less than I do, Harrison says. Irvin and Eric's kids wouldn't even know about Joel. Bernie and Noel definitely won't talk to you, and Rebecca lives in California. Not sure she knows much since she grew up in Tennessee. Oh, you know, Eugenia had 13 brothers and sisters. Some of them died, but I think most of them are still alive. Two of them worked at the nursing home, Uncle Eric and Harold. Harold is the minister who married my parents and me. You have two Uncle Eric's? I ask. Eric Peterson, Harrison says. He was the maintenance man for a long time. I don't have his number, but he still lives in Sargent. So, Sargent is not a real, like, town town. It's this little area. It's like a community area that is right outside of Noonan in Coweta County. And so, uh, when you're leaving... Noonan headed towards Whitesburg and Carrollton. That's where Sargent is. Since I can't stick around in Harrison's driveway, I go down the road to a marathon station. I don't know where Eugenia's legacy is leading me, but so far no one is telling me good things about her. She didn't murder anyone or commit arson. I think about that someone who spent their professional life caring for the elderly possessed more of a fan base. Of course, I talked to two of her disenchanted grandchildren and an ex-husband, but her devoted children didn't want to speak to me. Barry spoke to me without grimacing, though she likely plays the polite daughter role when her brothers act cold. Hiring a security guard to keep a man from his mother's funeral out of spite is pretty nasty, but not newsworthy. Harrison mentioned how his... Family picked apart Prescott's estate with Bertie only receiving the scraps, and Bernie lives in Daddy Warbuck's mansion while his aunt, who had been working at the same business for decades, 
bought a modest ranch home shortly before she passed away. Granted, nursing pays better than medical records, but I expect most families might do a little more to take care of their own, especially if they're going to get so personal about it. Uncle Peterson appears to only live five or so minutes up the road, since Sargent is more of a community than a town resting between Noonan and Whitesburg. See, I didn't even need to tell you that. It was in the book. There's a phone number for Eric on the White Pages website, which makes sense since he's an older man in his 80s. The generations born in the 90s and onward claim scruples about their public information as if everyone wants to stalk them. Hello? A woman answers the phone. Yes, is uh, Eric there? I ask. May I ask who is calling? Eric just got home from his sister's funeral, so he might not want to talk right now. Uh, yes, ma'am. I was there as well. I didn't get a chance to meet him. My name is Steve Sebastian, and I'm a journalist. Eric, there's some reporter on the phone who wants to talk to you. Uh, hello? Eric answers. Mr. Peterson, I say. Steve Sebastian, Associated Press. Do you think I could speak to you for a few moments about your sister, Eugenia? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't have a problem talking to you. What do you want to talk to me for? Uh, about all the good Eugenia did for the community. I understand you worked at the original Taylor Nursing Home with her, and I'd like your perspective as someone who knew her as a sibling and the, the big boss. Huh, Eric says. I can give you my address if you're nearby. Yes, sir. I'm park. I'm parking down the road in Noonan right now. Eric Peterson's home is off the main street leading through Arnco Sargent, and at first I see the house at two separate as two separate ones, but there's a long white one with a brick portion on the side next to an elongated carport you'd see at a funeral home. Maybe I'm noticing that because I was at one yesterday. So this is actually based on a real house, but a, a house that I've never been to. I've just seen pictures of it and it does look like a funeral home. It, it's weird. It does have this carport that's on the side and you know, most carports, they don't have uh, a rear exit. You know, they have usually, Usually they're on the back. You know what a carport is if you're li- and if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what a carport is or how it functions, I don't know what to fucking tell you. I'm just trying to tell you that it's a little weird to have one with like a big awning over it next to your house and have more of a driveway that goes out to like a big shed in the back. Anyway, A red-haired woman comes out the glass door where the brick part of the home sits and waves me over. Steve? she asks. Yes, ma'am. Ethel, she says. Eric is in here drinking a cup of coffee. You want me to pour you some? Absolutely. Even sitting down, Eric appears tall like his nephews, though he's bent over his mug, as if in contemplation about losing Eugenia. If anyone has something nice to say about her, I expect her brother might. Call me Eric, he pulls out the seat next to him. Good to meet you, Eric, I say. I spoke to a few people over the past couple of days. Out of curiosity, what do you think they had to say about Eugenia? 
Like anybody else, there were people who thought she was a bitch. Probably some of the people who worked for her. She wasn't always nice, but no one else is either. Who cares, though? She ran that nursing home through its best years. Was she always kind of like that? You know, there were 14 of us. Eugenia was almost smack dab in the middle, so she had to act as the mama sometimes. If you want to know the difference between the oldest and the youngest, our sister Lena had a daughter who was a teenager the same time my sister Harriet was. I think there was only 10 of us left. Eugenia tried to take care of us when she could or we needed help. Um, I, I retired from the police force and she hired me as maintenance at Taylor. So she she could be helpful in that way, but she always thought she knew better than you did about your business. I imagine with 14 children you were a farming family. Yes, sir. We lived in Claiborne County, Alabama. All of us moved around here because that's where the work was. Eugenia really didn't have the best start, though. Married young, had babies, and ended up in nursing school. You know, she was part of the first nursing class at Floyd Junior College up in Rome. She went all that way for her schooling and had five kids to come home to take care of. Uh, that sounds really admirable, though. Exactly. She didn't get it all by luck. I'm not sure where to take the conversation from here. No one accused Eugenia of not being hardworking, though her sons came across as overprotective, and Adrian hinted that there was something to uncover. Joel, Harrison, and now Eric aren't pointing in that direction. I can't get over the family keeping Harrison away from Bertie's funeral, though. That story doesn't make much more than a gossip column article, unfortunately. I used to be good friends with Jimmy Taylor before the divorce, Eric says. You know, he's the one that started the business. Jimmy Taylor? That's where the Taylor Nursing Home name comes from. He was probably one of the sweetest men you'd ever meet. Now... This was her second husband, right? I ask. He was even older than her first husband, Prescott. The liquor store in Whitesburg, the one that used to be a bank, is where his house he grew up in was. The bank bought the property from the family, and he used his money to fund the original nursing home before Eugenia was even a nurse. I think it was around 1982 that they got divorced. Obviously, Eugenia got the business. He wanted it to go to her grandkids, but that was back when she only had maybe three of them. And it's only Bernard that's involved with the business now, right? I ask. With all that money he has, Eric laughs, you'd think he'd want to share some of the responsibility. His daughter, Noel, is in charge of half the business now. That son of his, Bernie, is still the director of nursing at the original Noonan home. That leaves three other facilities, though. Hard enough to run the first one. Did anyone else in the family work there? In Eugenia's family? Uh, her daughter, Bertie, was head of medical records, which was 
uh, a one-person apartment for a long time. Harrison worked in the kitchen for a while. That's her son. I'd come into the serving room for lunch, and he'd say, Uncle Eric, what can I get you? I haven't seen him since he left, though. And Harrison is Bertie's son. Good boy, Eric nods. Educated, too. See, Eugenia offered him the dietary manager's position. And I thought, you put a smart kid like Harrison in a manager role, and he's going to end up running everything before it's over. Bernard never went back to school. He's actually the only one of Eugenia's kids to not go to college. And I bet he has more money than all of them. Seems like you're hinting at something. Did Bernard not like Harrison working there? Bernard already had Bernie and Noel, but for a while he tried to be a disciplinarian in Harrison's life. When Harrison used to say he wanted to run the nursing home, this was when he was a little boy. Bernard would laugh at him and tell him he didn't want to do that. Then the boy got a degree and was going to train for the dietary manager job. I think Bernard took that crazy woman who used to run the kitchen, her name was Ruby, to run him off. Eugenia did a better job at running him off than her, though. Despite what Eric is telling me, I'm not sure that I buy Harrison wanted to ever take over the business, but I can see Bernard perceiving him as a threat. With the little interaction I had with him, Bernard came across as hostile and overly cautious about outsiders. Harrison is his family, though obviously not welcome into their fold. Someone told me that Harrison wasn't allowed at his mother's funeral, I say. This is something that you're going to notice throughout the book, that Steve talks to people as if he doesn't have this information already, because he wants to get a unique answer out of them. It might le- If he says, yeah, I talked to Harrison and he told me this, do you know about this? It wouldn't work the same way. You heard about that, huh? I told Bertie before I retired that I'd love to see him again for lunch one day. He was at the nursing home all the time when he was coming up, so it was like his home away from home, I reckon. Do you know why Eugenia wouldn't want him at the funeral? I asked. She thought he shot himself in the foot by marrying that girl. She didn't like that he backed out of working at the nursing home either. Bernard... It didn't want Harrison around, but Eugenia saw it as a way to take care of her grandson. A teach a man to fish situation where she was trying to give him a rod and reel, you know. She called him a spoiled brat on more than one occasion, but Harrison just went about things his own way. He didn't go into medicine or law like his uncles. You have to let a man take care of his life the way he wants. So, Eugenia resented him? See, Eric empties his cup. It's not quite like that. She loved her grandson. I wouldn't say Harrison was her favorite. That was my nephew Eric's boy. He's a weird one. But Harrison turned his back on everyone by standing by his wife and leaving the nursing home. I need to bring this back to the early 90s when Prescott passed away because there's some connection to him. Harrison claims his father fell out with Eugenia when it came to Prescott's estate. Note what Joel says his 
marriage to Eugenia ended because of money in the business. This all seemed to happen around the same time, too. How well did you know Prescott Berman, I ask. The Bermans and the Petersons crossed paths many times. I wouldn't say Prescott and me were best friends, but I liked him well enough. His mama died at the nursing home in the 80s, and she was always around her grandchildren. If there is one thing I can say about Prescott is that he was frugal. After Eugenia left him, he didn't spend most of his money. I heard he had a lot of stock in Coca-Cola and General Electric. I'm sure that was nice when he passed on. That sounds like it was probably a lot of money. But if Eugenia wasn't married to him when he died, who was the executor of his estate? Bernard, I think, Eric says. I suspect he got the bulk of it. He had that nice house out in Mount Zion before he built the one he lives in now. Outside of the business, what do you think of Bernard? He was his mama's boy. His house is in the same neighborhood as Eugenia's place. I can tell you he's not her executor, though. That'd be Eric. Isn't he the judge? I ask. In Cobb County, yeah, Eric nods. We are peeling the onion together. As I'm reading this, I see an indirect Faulkner <laughs> inspiration here. I didn't like, Abs- uh, is it Absalon, Absalon I had to read? Yeah. I hated that book so much, but, you know, it's a celebrated novel, so you should realize that it's a book that tells the same story over and over and over again, but each person adds a little bit of detail that the last person didn't. It's a true onion-peeling novel. And here, we do have some repetition, but it's new information with each person that we're, we're getting here. It's not a rehash over and over again. But also, another thing that you have to realize is that this portion of the book with the Bermans is not the entire book. There's a lot more that goes on in this book after, what, page 40 or 60? I don't remember when they, they kind of go away. He, 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 he does callbacks to them, and the, the Berman characters show up again later in the novel, but that's a different situation. I wait until Monday to call in to judge Eric Berman's office. His secretary, Minnie, says she'll get back to me about whether or not he'll speak to the press. Meanwhile, I draw out the Berman family tree, starting with Prescott and Eugenia. The children are Barry, Bernard, uh, Bertie, Irvin, and Eric. So far, the most important grandchildren in my story are Bernard's kids, Bernie and Noel and Bertie's son, Harrison. By the time I start writing notes about Eugenia's two additional husbands, Jimmy Taylor and Joel Withers, Minnie gets back to me that Judge Berman can see me for 30 minutes around 4 o'clock. Since traffic is such a bitch between my apartment in Woodland Hills and Marietta, I leave around too. Eric is likely unaware of why I'm here, And I didn't give my name to a secretary, so I carry my press badge in, though a guard buzzes the magic wand on me to make sure I'm not packing a firearm. Minnie has me sit outside the chambers for a minute until Eric buzzes her that he can see me. My hope is that because I'm officially part of the press and made an appointment, he won't immediately throw me out of the courthouse. 
When I walk inside his chambers, Eric doesn't look up from the document he's reading until I stand silently for a moment. Please, he gestures to a chair. Thank you, Your Honor, I say. Now, I seem to recall us standing face to face at my mother's viewing on Saturday. I was unaware she was of such interest to the press. What's brought you to my office today, Mr. Sebastian? Well, he remembers my name, though his demeanor tells me this isn't because he's pleased to see me. I, I don't have much of your time, and you're a judge, so I know you're a smart guy. I had the opportunity to speak to Joel Withers immediately after your mother's funeral. I managed to get a hold of Harrison Devonwood, who led me to your uncle, who is also named Eric, and Mr. Peterson told me that you are the executor of your mother's estate. So why is, unlike the others, you know, why is Steve Sebastian laying it out on the table for Eric? Well, aside from the small amount of time that he has with Eric, he knows that Eric is a judge. Eric is in law, so he knows how to dissect and analyze a situation. So if he just goes ahead and plants the evidence and everything that he has in front of Eric, Eric might be able to give him what he's looking for. Now, what's he looking for? We'll find out. While I follow your breadcrumbs, Eric says, I don't know why you've taken such an interest in my mother or why you're sitting across from me. When I went to your mother's viewing on Saturday, I expected maybe an additional 50 words we could tack onto her obituary. Instead... I have the potential for a much longer article with no conclusion, which isn't uncommon in my work. If I find nothing of interest, then I won't publish anything. Okay, Eric furrows his brow. You're the executor of Eugenia's estate, right? That decision was made shortly after she retired. It has more to do with my experience in law than anything else. I find it kind of funny since I figured Bernard was her favorite son. Oh, I have no delusions about that. Bernard was her favorite. He was pissed when she made that decision. Seems like that's his response to a lot of things. Yeah, when Mother needed to go to the emergency room around that time, she called Bertie to come take her because... Bernard told her, and I still can't believe he said this, that she can call me to come help her from then on. Man, I, I wish I could talk to Bertie about that one, I say. My sister never deserved that, Eric says. When Bernard showed up at the ER, Bertie told me he looked at her like he could kill her. Granted, Bertie didn't really take after our father, and neither did Bernard. So, they came by it honestly? I ask. I'd like to think Irvin and I are a bit more like our dad. Barry is the wild card. She's the nicest of us, probably because she left for Tennessee when she did. Harrison and your uncle told me that there was some discrepancy about the way Bernard handled your father's estate when he passed. Joel hinted at money and the business being the root cause of a lot of the family squabbling at the time. 
Honestly, Bernard kept us all in the dark about what he did with daddy's money. I got a little, which I used for a down payment on a car. Irvin got a little, though I don't know what he used it for. I'm sure Harrison told you about Birdie getting dad's trailer. Hell, it probably cost more to haul it to the junkyard than what it was worth. So if Bernard had the rights to your mother's estate, I imagine we'd all be screwed, Eric says. Mother used to joke we were going to sell all of her stuff in her front yard, but the first thing I did when she died was change all the locks and the security pin on her brink system. Even her Cadillac is locked in the garage. Any plans on how to divide it up? Okay, now you're getting into the personal territory. I'll tell you that none of the grandchildren are getting anything yet. That's another thing pissing off Bernard because he wants Bernie and Noel to have certain things. He wanted to give Bernie our father's Rolex and he and I didn't speak for years because of it. Bertie said we should have buried him with it. She was pretty smart, I guess. If As I'm reading this aloud right now, some of the names might sound kind of... <laughs> Similar, which is true to life, honestly. But uh, he said he wanted to give Bernie, as in Bernard's son, the Rolex of their dad, Prescott. And Bertie, the daughter, who is Harrison's mother, suggested that they bury their father with the Rolex on. If the... Grandchildren aren't getting anything, then I'm guessing you're dividing it into forts, but what about Harrison? This is why I haven't made any final decisions yet. Mother wanted the estate divided for all five of us, but now we're four. She never changed her will after we lost Bertie. I don't know Harrison from any stranger on the street, but I do know he's getting the ass end of this family drama. If my, it's my duty as a journalist to remain objective and remove my emotions from these situations. So I can't advocate for him, especially if he likely doesn't want anyone on his side. What did you make of Harrison's absence at the funeral yesterday? I ask. Can't say I was surprised, but I do love the kid. I think because of him losing his father, even if his father is still alive, everyone in the family felt partially responsible for his upbringing to help Bertie. She was such a passive woman. I couldn't believe our mother kept him from Bertie's funeral. Wasn't much I could say about it. I imagine Harrison took our silence on her behalf as a united front against him. I have no idea why they fell out, though. Harrison said it didn't really begin with his wife leaving the nursing home, but rather his whole life with Eugenia built up to the split. Hmm. Not much I can say about that. Harrison was a good kid growing up, a little strange, and you could tell he wasn't like the rest of us. Just something about him. I do wonder how much of that was his own choice, though. He was never disinvited from Christmas or Thanksgiving, and I seem to recall Mother telling Bertie she wanted him there for our last family portrait. But there was never an attempt to apologize to him. I don't know that there was anything to apologize for. Let's 
talk hypothetically, I say. You divide the estate and there's no birdie. What do you do with Harrison's portion? If it comes down to that, he's a little old for a trust, Eric says, at least in my opinion. I don't see myself giving him Bertie's inheritance, though. Why? Because he abandoned my mother. She said off-color things to everyone. I don't think Harrison understands what a family is supposed to be and why we would include him when he chose to be excluded. Another benefit of naming Eric the judge and attorney as the estate executor diminishes the likelihood of legal battles. Bernard and Harrison reserve just cause to litigate given his inaction. I don't buy the Eric's fairness and how he's distributing the inheritance either. He's in his office the day after his mother's funeral and her house is locked with the only key in his possession. That doesn't strike me as someone who trusts or understands family, though he may sustain a reason to keep them all locked out. As someone who observed Eugenia's business from a distance, I say, what do you think is going to happen to Taylor Nursing Home without her? I don't even know how they operated four different properties with Bernard and Noel as the only real administrators. I know Bernie ends up pulling a lot of the weight at the Noonan branch these days. Honestly, Bernard could retire and leave it to his kids. You don't think anyone else in the family might deserve a place in the business? That's another reason I went into law. I worked there for a year as a CNA and I wouldn't want to work with family ever again. If there's one person Eric appears to resent in his family, it's Bernard. The oldest son versus the youngest is not an uncommon trope in life. Bernard probably has more income than Eric, too. That's not enough for Bernard given his past of unfairly distributing what might have been millions his father had in stock. By the way, I say, what happened with Prestot's Rolex, exactly? Why wouldn't someone in the family get that? I mean, Bernard is the oldest, so it might make sense for him to inherit. So here's the thing about this. Steve is poking the bear at this point. Like he knows that this is a sensitive topic. He's not dumb and suggesting that Bernard is deserving of that Rolex because he's the oldest boy. Yeah. He's ruffling feathers on purpose here. But my father had three sons. Eric says Bernard already got the bulk of his estate. So it could have gone to Irvin. Or it could have gone to me. The point was that we give it to someone not in the family. Who? My friend from law school, Eric says. Brian Kessler. My mother suggested him, actually. And that's why you and Bernard didn't talk? No. Bernie was graduating high school. And Bernard offered to buy the watch from Brian. Brian called me about it, and obviously I didn't take that well. So, it was you that didn't talk to Bernard. Eric blows a sigh from his tightened lips while snapping a pen top and tossing it in the trash can next to his desk. Uh, A note on this. So, earlier we had a sigh from Harrison that filled the room and gave Steve more information that the entire conversation gave him. 
these are things that I have to be mindful of as the writer. The audience may not be as, you know, observant of it, or maybe they they just don't give a shit. But, you know, you can't have everyone in your book sighing all the time, even though a lot of people sigh. It's just uh, bad writing, but it's it's something that you use sparingly. And when you have a character like this going over a stressful topic where he has a lot of blame to take and he goes so far as to break a pen in half, basically, uh, it shows that what Steve is uncovering is another layer in this onion I had a few and left Bernard a voicemail. He checked his answering machine in front of his wife and both of the kids. So you fucked up, I shrug. I wrote all of them a letter apologizing, but any time I went to Mother's house, Bernard wasn't there, even for Christmas. I... Suppose if Bernard still wasn't speaking to you, he wouldn't make the cut for his share of the inheritance? Perhaps not, Mr. Sebastian. Now I have to get home to my wife for dinner. I hope you got all the gossip you need from me today, because we will not be speaking again. Hey, I stand up to leave. I have three more Bermans to go through. Good talk, Eric. Before I sign off for today, I need to talk about this character, Eric. So, Eric is obviously based on a real person. But the thing is, is that aside from the uh, the Law and Order thing of this is based on true events, the names have been changed, the per- whatever. Eric is, a, in his real life inspiration, is a good guy. I wouldn't say anything bad about him. Um, I like him. I love him even. But the situation between these two brothers with the Rolex watch that happened in real life. I can't, you know, sit here and deny that most of the stuff that's been mentioned in the book is just complete fabrication. But that little story, uh, little did they know when they were feuding all those years and I was growing up that I was going to put it in a book someday throughout the years. I seem to recall going to my grandmother's for, family get-togethers more often than just Thanksgiving and Christmas. I, I was there all the time, it seemed. Maybe, there, you know, there would be a couple of months or so that would pass by where we, 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 all, we all wouldn't get together and I wouldn't see everyone. But still, the times that we got together each year got to be fewer and fewer as I grew up. But part of that was this schism in the family with these two uncles of mine. And, you know, you can say that it started with the the watch, but obviously that watch had a history to it. And it was based on an agreement that the family made before I was even born because uh, my, my grandfather died a few days after my parents got married. My mother was pregnant with me, but she hadn't told anyone yet. And... You know, the decision was, it was a dumb decision, I think. I'm not saying that my family's dumb, but I am saying that they made a dumb decision, a poor decision. And giving that watch to not only 
someone who was supposed to be an outsider, but they gave it to the youngest brother's friend and someone that I don't even know if he even keeps in touch with anymore. And yes, one of the people, I won't say who, but you can probably gather who it was, did suggest that they bury the father with the watch. And that does make sense. I don't understand. Were they afraid of grave robbers or something? I don't understand. Was it just worth too much money to put in the ground that they would rather just give it to a stranger? And that, But see, that left the door open later on, did it not? For someone to say, hey, can I buy that off of you for my son? If they'd buried it in the ground, that could have never have happened. But giving it to someone, that means one day we can take it away from him. We can't go dig it up later, but we can take it back from him. But this was kind of insignificant family drama that people outside the family were talking about. These two brothers not talking to each other for years over a, a disagreement over a watch. And yeah, there's more symbolic about the watch, as I said, but at the end of the day, it is just a watch. Yes, it belonged to their father, but the, the, the squabble was over a dynamic that had been present for a long time. And I think that jealousy plays a part in it. I mean, this guy, the youngest son's son is the favorite grandson. Um, you know, my grandmother did refer to him as the baby all the time, even though he was a grown man. And then there was the oldest son who actually got a lot of things, including the family business. And, you know, I don't know how you can really have much jealousy over someone being kind of the favorite when you have been winning all the favor for most of your life. Again, not making judgments about either of these men that I haven't spoken to in years, but it's just funny to me that there was this dynamic in uh, the, the family that perpetuated this weird aura for years where when the oldest son would come, he would show up for a few minutes and then leave. Sometimes, you know, my cousins, his, his daughter and his son would show up. But it was just really strange. They didn't even reunite, like start talking to, to each other again when my uncle's daughter got married. They started talking to each other when one of our cousins, like my second cousin, had a wedding and they had some drinks on them and they were at the reception together. That was it. But there was still some tension there for a little while, too. All the family drama that happens in the first part of this book, as I said earlier, that's not what makes up most of this book. This is just the first part. It changes dramatically. So if you think that this part of the book is really grounded in reality, especially compared to my other books, just you wait. Because you have to remember, this takes place in the same world where Greenskin took place and Steve Sebastian. It's the same character that shows up in the book Birch. I really appreciate you all listening to this. If you haven't gone out and bought, you don't even have to go anywhere. You can do it on your phone. I think it's funny that we say you should go out and buy when most of the things that 
exist today, you can just buy online. You don't even get up from your seat. You have it on your phone. You can download the Kindle app on your phone and buy the book for $4.95. And no, I'm not going to be doing any free giveaways, you cheap steak. Fucking shell out the $4.95 plus tax and read my damn book. Anyway, <laughs> this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. I love you. Fat man sitting on a little stool takes a money from my hand. Wise eyes take a walk all over you. Pass me two tickets, smiles and whispers, good luck. Well, cuddle up, angel, cuddle up, my little dove. And we'll ride down, baby, into this tunnel of love. Well, I feel the soft silk of your blouse and all the soft thrills in our little fun house. The lights go up and just a of us, yeah, you and me and all that stuff we're so scared of, gonna ride down, baby, into